This is the St. Charles History Chronicle, episode 2304. The Ancient Past of St. Charles, 13,000 Years of Human Habitation. With Dr. Dale F. Simpson, Jr., Professor Archaeology, College of DuPage. Brought to you by the St. Charles History Museum in St. Charles, Illinois. All right, everybody, welcome to the St. Charles History Chronicle podcast. This is Steve Gibson. I'm president of the board here at the St. Charles History Museum. I'm joined today by my co-host, Eric Krupa. Hi, Eric. Hey, how's it going, everybody? And our special guest is Dr. Dale F. Simpson, Jr. Um, He's professor of archaeology at COD, and he was our presenter at a recent VIP uh, event that we had here at the museum. And we thought we'd bring him in and talk a little bit about some of the same things we talked about um, at the presentation. Welcome, Dale. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me back. I didn't think after seeing that rowdy crowd I'd get uh, (laughs) asked back up here, but it was was a great time. I think uh, it showed me just the interest all of our stakeholders have in the past. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to see so many people want to learn more about our traditional owners and traditional custodians of this landscape. So thank you very much for everyone who came. Great. Yeah. And I, I think it was a, a, a great time. And it's always, it's interesting to see the things that interest people that become tangential to your original idea. And I think that um, we saw that again on Sunday. Um, in, in First of all, um, when we're talking about um, uh, indigenous peoples, Native Americans, the St. Charles History Museum has had an exhibit just inside the front door of the museum of uh, Indian arrowheads and tomahawks and some other things like that, which to me represent a 1950s, 1960s ideal of what it was to have Native Americans living in front of you in, on the Fox River. Yeah, that's a great segue, you know, as we're, we're dealing with our traditional custodians. Uh, I use that term because it's something I learned throughout my, my studies in, in Australia, the idea that it's not their ownership. They were moving through these lands. And I'd like to acknowledge, you know, these, these first inhabitants to our lands. We have to realize anyone in North America is really an immigrant. Uh, as we look at the general movement of people, there, there were not people in the United States or Canada or North America to probably 20, 25,000 years ago. Some of the earliest sites like White Sands National Park that has some footsteps of early humans or some of these earlier sites. We know humans have been here for quite a long time. So that gives me the, the chance to just really acknowledge those folks. Uh, in our area, we're very used to the, the Council of the Three Fires, which include the Potawatomi, the Ojibwa, the Ottawa. But as well, Illinois, Northern Illinois has seen a variety of groups Sauk, the Fox, the Illini a little bit down south, Mezasaki, Kaskaskia. I mean, mean, there's the Peoria. There's a lot more groups. The problem is, is that Illinois was a removal state. So with the, you know, the 1830 Indian Removal Act, um, everyone was moved on off. And more so, Illinois doesn't have a federally recognized tribe. Now, if I'm not mistaken, it's something like there are some 300 or there's 600 groups that are recognized by the government, but there are three, some 300 bands of, or individuals from bands that can be found in Chicago, right? It, it was a big movement place uh, for natives to come back and live in more urban settings. But again, it's just so weird, that situation. So what I'm, yeah. what I'm saying in short is this is a great opportunity then with looking at some of these First Nation remains is to honor them. Uh, and these land acknowledgments that get put out for, you know, museums or for uh, events, you know, they're they're great. They're a great starting point. But what we find and what's been written a lot lately is there are a lot of bark and no bite, yeah. right? 
what do we do after a land acknowledgement, right? What do we, how do we better understand these groups? And what we can do is review museum collections, yeah. see how the people lived in the past, what were their activities. Um, it's not all cowboys and Indians, mm-hmm. right? A lot of them live peaceful, productive lives uh, in areas. There was a lot of interaction. There was a lot of movement. And I think ultimately this this project is giving us a chance to showcase just what First Nations people did on this landscape up to 13,000 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been one of my goals here as the collections manager to bring more attention to the voices of the indigenous people and the people that have been on our land for literally 13, 14,000 years now. I mean, we have over at least a thousand projectile points, knives, and tools. Uh, those rarely get to see the light of day. So, uh, you know, they're kept in the storage area, basically. basically. And we want to bring them out and we want to let the people actually get to see what these people kind of dealt with, what they were like, and how uh, we're basically using many of the same tools today. Well, and that's, I think, partially where we're kind of really lucky to have somebody like Dale here to talk to us about it is that one of the things about these artifacts is they all kind of get thrown into this big box, right? They, we, we conflate everything prior to 1833 when the first white settlers show up into a box full of Native American or um, First Peoples or, or Indigenous or whatever the term is that we want to use. And I think one of the goals here is to kind of open up that box, take these things out, put them in some context. And and, uh, I think one of the things that is kind of interesting to me is I look at arrowheads and things that are used almost all for hunting. Or Then we open up the boxes of artifacts that we have here, and what do we find? We find tools, okay? And the cool thing is to me... Um, being a mechanic from way back and a, and a DIYer and everything else is to take a look at these tools and realize that a lot of them are analogous to the stuff that we have today mm-hmm. and what were they used for and how do they represent the changes that are going on. So. Yeah, That's a great word is context, right? Um, in archaeology, that's the most important thing we do. A lot of times, yes, the artifacts give us a lot of information about, you know, what and and where but the more important questions in archaeology is how and why. And that you need context to get a better understanding. So for me to have the chance to look at these pieces, we've got a rough idea of where they're coming on the landscape. Um, so now I can start talking about space and time. And that's the real strength of archaeology. Why I, su- I very much support all of my colleagues in history, the benefit of archaeology is we can go beyond 6,000 years of the written record. Yeah. We can combine a variety of records, whether it be environmental, material culture, archaeological, whether it be flora or fauna. And what it is, is you're just putting a big puzzle together. So looking at stone tools, they're sometimes the corners and the edges of the puzzle because they've been here around the longest. It's material that stays in the record. Um, one of the classes I teach is actually called Stones and Bones. <laughs> and the reason we call that because those are two of the materials that um, tend to have the longest shelf life. So we can analyze those. But what we're seeing with a lot of museum collections, especially with what some are calling sort of the curation crisis, is just space to properly curate uh, and and to protect these items. So a lot of times things get thrown in one box, as you say. Mm-hmm. They don't see the light of day, as, as you said. And, and a lot of times it's only 1% on the floor 
compared to what's so if you're saying you have 2500 pieces in total 1000 artifacts my guess is you've got 10 20 out on the floor because you just have this ratio of what can actually be representative so here we have we've had a chance to look at some of these pieces and i think it's fascinating on what what they were doing on this landscape yeah well, I th- let's talk a little bit about time period here, because um, I think one of the things that I, I mentioned to people when, when I talk, uh, give them tours and talk about the history of St. Charles is we've got a history of about 180 years, 190 years here at St. Charles' settlement. When we got here, the Potawatomi Indians were here, the Sac and the Fox and all the, the tribes along the, the Fox River were, were making use of the land. Um, but the truth is that they had arrived in the 17th century, in the early 17th century, 1620, 1670, something like that. Um, doing the math, that's about 160 years before the period that we're talking about. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't somewhere else and didn't end up getting forced here by, by politics within their own uh, world, okay? But um, the truth is that we're talking about a time span that really, I mean, what, 160 years to 13,000 years? Is that yeah. right, Dale? Yes, sir. I, I mean, that that's a huge jump in time. And I think that's one of the, the issues we have just in our education systems is teaching a little bit more about what we call deep time. Yep. You know, Australians, they they have been on their lands for 60 to 70,000 years, well documented through a variety of cave sites or, you know, sort of habitation sites, kill sites, for example. Um, in North America, we really don't see people move into this area, uh, our area, to about 14, 13, 14,000 years ago. But we know people are in the New World by probably – 22, 25,000 years ago. You know, one of the first sites that we're seeing coming online right now is is actually in one of our national parks in White Sands. And what they found was within this fresh layer of gypsum uh, that was that was sort of on the ground, looks like a group of children are running in this landscape. And they seem to be jumping in the puddles of footsteps of larger megafauna that are on this landscape, right? Uh, and there's one great little view where it looks like they sort of someone or or two of them sort of turn to the right, and it's sort of you know the, the the gypsum oozes between their feet and their toes, and it shows this this early colonization uh, of our of, of North America, and that's not to mention not just taking this sort of ice free corridor route between North, um, Russia and the United States or Canada and Alaska as they're coming through. But they were also doing using something called the Kelp Highway. Uh, and they probably were using, um, you know, watercraft. They had already had colonized the Pacific by 65,000 years ago in Australia. So they have a form of watercraft. And it'd be these groups then that slowly are tracing the glaciers we are in the, the Pleistocene, which is an era between 2.6 million years ago to about 11,000 years ago. And in here, the glaciers are like an accordion. And they're forming, they're retreating, they're forming, they're retreating. And it just gives sort of this um, border. But as soon as those glaciers start to retreat, and as soon as these animals start sort of accessing new land that was under the glaciers, the humans are following them. And that probably brought people into our area 13,000 years ago. So to understand this very long, deep time of, of Illinois, of St. Charles, we have to go back all the way to places like Russia and that movement into Beryzhnia and then through the Ice-Free Corridor or through the Kelp Highway and then inside our, our area. So I think that's fascinating, it just is. that that story. And we know it now by not just stones and bones, but also genes. We can look at language. We can look at um, 
especially the osteology of teeth, how the how teeth are are, are formed. We could look at the trace elements inside there. So there, it's it's really fascinating work that's coming online to show this this population movement. It is, and it's also a, yet another thing that happens when you start collecting history, when you start preserving history, is you start to get this um, uh, yet another leaf on the tree, let's say, that you can go and pay attention to. But it also informs the present, right? It's very much something that we use to say it didn't just magically happen. This, um, I tell people that the reason why St. Charles is here is because St. Charles was a great access point for Western Illinois, a great place to cross the Fox River, a straight line out of Chicago for, for people that have been here for a long time before us. Almost everything seems to follow that. So it's not like uh, magically somebody showed up, you know, hopped off a stagecoach and said, I'm going to select this point, which is kind of the way we thought of Evan Shelby when he first showed up this is he came out here got to the river didn't want to cross the river put up you know put some stakes in the ground but the reason why he got here was because the trail led here the the, and the trail leads here because other people walked here and the yeah that's just it you know we we have what's called culture history it's usually divided into certain phases so what i just want to do is just highlight the main archaeological phases that we use for illinois archaeology um, these phases really help us uh, as researchers to place sites and artifacts into a known timeline. And then we use a lot of you know, comparison work. That's why it's important for us to look at museum collections, because then we can tie that into the archaeological record. So in short, the oldest period that we have here is, is typically called the, the Paleo-Indian phase. Um, it's something that exists from when people first push into our area, maybe 13 to, to 14,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago. So these are still Pleistocene people. They're living at the end of the Ice Age. The environment is radically changing. Um, we still see them hunting sort of these mastodons and mammoths and, uh, you know, the, the these, these bigger megafauna on the landscape. But as the environment changes, a lot of these animals become extinct. And one of the lessons we can learn about the past, some have argued humans caused that extinction. Now, there are other issues, the environment's changing, there, you know, there, there could be uh, issues with um, the water that they're drinking is no longer available in these kettle lakes as it's moving, everything's moving farther up north and they're trying to move up north. Um, but around that 10,000 year ago period, we enter a phase which it seems pretty, um, I don't know, detriment or, you know, sort of derogatory, but we call it the archaic phase. <laughs> and it lasts, it lasts for about 10,000 years. So we further divide that into early, middle, and late. And we can see changes, especially in their hunting technologies. One of the, one of the things that happens, there's no more megafauna on the landscape. So instead of hunting these mastodons and mammoths, they start to move to smaller prey, especially caribou, elk, deer, and then we know the bison. Right. And we see we can see technological change. Their their tools for hunting are changing. Uh, from there, we see another change at that 1000 year period um, uh, before current era. So we'll say 3000 years ago. And then we enter the very common woodland phase. Uh, it as well is divided into sort of early, middle, late uh, and major features in this is we see the advent of the bow and arrow. So we can see there's also technological change. Uh, maybe they're after those deer. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of bow hunters that are listening and, and realize that you're practicing and is something that people have been doing for thousands of years in Illinois. You're continuing an ancient tradition, and I find that very important. Uh, and then we enter the Mississippian phase, um, which is very well connected to sites like Cahokia, 
the only world, you know, a UNESCO World Heritage Site we have in the entire state of Illinois is actually found about uh, 10 minutes outside St. Louis in Collinsville, Illinois. Uh, it is literally the first city of our state. Um, and it was larger than like cities like London at the time. So all these phases, all they do is they give us a backbone. As time has gone on, we've refined this backbone. We've made it stronger. So the idea is to introduce these these timelines uh, to show the major technological advances that happen in there by using the tools that we have in the collection here, and then to link it onto the present. Uh, and that's where you guys come in because you're more in experts uh, than I am in that sort of contact period, historic colonial period. And that's why we, we're working together, I think, because between the three of us, we can talk about the entire technological change of Northern Illinois archaeology uh, for the last 13,000 years. And that's it's spectacular. A museum is able to do that. Uh, and I always make the, the, the push that because we have Fermilab, I know, Batavia, this, I, I get it, a little, little, little way, but it's still within our zone. If we do the archaeology of this area, we can do everything from the earliest stone tools to the God particle. We, with Fermilab with us, we literally have every line of technology humans have ever created in the world, in our area, starting from these very large landslot points that were used to take down mastodons to finding particles that talk about the formation of our planet, of our galaxy. So I find that really fascinating. We're in this really sweet spot for archaeology, and I just appreciate the chance to, you know, be able to look at your pieces and, and help form that, that, or, you know, fill in that timeline. Well, when we're looking at a geologic time scale or stuff like that, I always like to bring back the analogy of the calendar. This is how I learned back in the day in high school and also back in whenever. So let's say we have the month of December here. And it starts on the 1st. Uh, humans don't appear till like 23 hours on December 31st, if you want to put that into perspective. That's a great one. No, I use the clock analogy too, yeah. right? You know, you got the 12 hours. Humans don't come into the last minute of, yep. of, the, of the whole clock, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and we are just really little grains on this large beach of time. And then we look at the world, you know, we're, we're dealing with, you know, the formation of the, the, the galaxy. We're just a very short end species. And this is sort of worrisome because if our human evolution, you know, we, we, we discuss 200,000 years we've become Homo sapiens, right? Leaving from Africa. That's, that's where our story really begins. But if we look for some of our first hominid species, that, you know, we go back 7 million years. So we're, we are, we are a very short lived species. Um, and I think that there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from our earlier ancestors about environmental change, over hunting, over collecting. There are lessons of the past that will serve us for the future. And I think that's the ultimate goal of what we do here. Absolutely. We might be the most recent, but we've got the best music, right? Oh, true story. I, isn't that, I mean, that's what you always hear in the argument, right? Th that's right. Ours is the best music. Okay. Well, I would, I, well, let's just, well, we can hold back because, you know, Neanderthal, although we see them as these huge brutes, um, one of the first flutes that are on, is in the archaeological record actually comes from Neanderthal. 
uh, they created these beautiful bone, bone flutes that they probably had their own music. So we are not the only species that probably had uh, music, but I would agree we seem to uh, we seem to <laughs> ramp it up a notch. I don't see that many Neanderthal bands the, these days. No, but, they didn't. But they, they didn't don't make, rock out as much. They I guess. didn't make the cut to vinyl. I guess <laughs> that's right. The, that's the problem, right. So. Myself personally, and I know Eric would echo this. We're looking forward to working with you in the future on things like this, and maybe doing a deep dive into stuff because. Yes, um, I, I absolutely agree that history is kind of cool in both directions. It isn't just 1833 or 1834. It's 2023, and it's 13,000 BCE or whatever. Maybe it's 11,000 BCE. I don't know how to do the math there. You're, you're good. You're, okay. you're, you're, you're perfect. You're spot Within on. Within a couple thousand there, anyways. <laughs> Plus or, or minus. Orders of magnitude, yeah. yes. Um, so, uh, uh, again, thank you, Dr. Dale F. Simpson, yeah, Jr. Thank you. And we appreciate you coming out and talking to us today, just as we appreciate you coming out to the VIP event. Fantastic um, event there. We look forward to working with you in the future on things like that and, uh, and and really appreciate your taking the time to do this with us. No, no worries. This is this is what our mandate's about. You know, I'm, I'm a... To, to see so many local people come out, I, I'm, I'm a local person as well. You know, as I mentioned in the presentation, I, I'm from Warrenville. Um, you know, I used to wrestle. So coming into St. Charles was always uh, a big feat, you know, coming into St. Chuck, as we <laughs> called it, because they're always tough teams. Um, you know, and then uh, Grams used to always bring me into Charleston Mall when yeah. we were when we were kids there. So <laughs> it was it's great to just uh, outreach and to see so many folks that want that knowledge. And I think that's what one thing the the St. Charles uh, History Museum really does well is it outreaches knowledge to our stakeholders, to our people, to our community. And I think the more that our groups have this knowledge, the better we're going to be prepared for the future. So thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone who came out. Look forward to our next event in the future. Perhaps we can do some type of artifact ID day or an antiques road show. Uh, and we get a, you know, maybe 10, 15 people to bring in some goodies. Uh, and we can hopefully identify that for you. Yeah. Sounds great to me. Well, thank you again, Dr. Dale, for everything. I feel like I've learned more than I could have in, I don't know, three weeks. <laughs> well, me as well. I mean, just learning about the history bit of, of St. Charles. It's knowledge I don't have, and that's what I really look forward in my life is you never stop learning. And that's what I, I really uh, appreciate your guys' time because you, you've given me the ins and outs of St. Charles that I just didn't know about. So I feel much more educated about St. Chuck's and looking forward to come back. Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Great note to end on. Um, I uh, well, thank everybody for tuning into the podcast today and uh, look forward to having you join us uh, regularly. We appear on all the normal podcast places, so um, check us out. Thanks again. We'll talk to everybody soon. Hey, Bye-bye. Thank you, guys, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you for listening to the St. Charles History Chronicle podcast. This content is copyright 2023, St. Charles History Museum, all rights reserved. Additional information on this episode and other podcast episodes is available at stcmuseum.org forward slash podcast.